This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Matt, our card for this week is Rick Russell, number 660, pitcher for the San Francisco Giants. Okay, great. Rick Russell. But before we get to that, we have some follow-up from last week with Oda B. McDowell. We had some listeners kind of chide us a little bit, David, on, on something important that we left out. Matt, when I first asked you if you wanted to talk about Oda B. McDowell, I texted you and said, Oda B. Young again, McDowell. And then somehow in the 35 minutes of talking about Oda B. McDowell last week, we never referenced his Chris Berman nickname. Oda B. Young Again McDowell. I think that's one of the better Chris Berman nicknames. We haven't gotten into that a lot. I think we had Burt B. Home Bly 11. <laughs> but that Oda B. Great. Young Again is pretty good. That is pretty good. And what was even better was listener Andrew, which is at IHC underscore guy on Twitter. He sent over in response to the Oda B. McDowell card. He sent over this picture. And we'll have this in the show notes. This is a picture from the 1984 Olympic team. And it's Mark McGuire holding Oda B. McDowell in his arms. And it's autographed by Oda B. McDowell. It's an amazing picture. I have no idea how this came into being, how it got signed. But it's, I really wish we had had it you know, for the episode. But we'll make sure it's in the show notes so listeners can go back and enjoy that. I mean, this, this is just an incredible piece of work. A lot of college baseball home runs in that picture. That's a good USA hat, too. Yeah, fantastic. So it's Rick Russell. We're putting him up on the screen here. David, why did we pick Rick Russell today? Matt, we picked Rick Russell for a few reasons. One, he is an Illinois native, and you know that one of my favorite things to talk about is uh, random towns in downstate Illinois. <laughs> this is going to give us a lot of time to talk about it today. His nickname is Big Daddy. <laughs> Let's get that. Right off the bat, that's a great nickname. We got another old guy pitcher. This set is mostly old guy pitchers. I think all guys over 40. Or maybe it just seems that we front-loaded them because we like to talk about them. This is the request of a listener and special guest, Adam Dorofsky. Hey, how you doing, guys? We are great. Welcome to the show. Adam is the head of user experience for Sports Reference, and he also created the Hall of Stats. So that's an alternative Hall of Fame website that's populated using a statistical formula. So we are going to really dig into Rick Russell's stats today. Adam, it also seems like you're the head of the Rick Russell fan club. Seems to be that way. There isn't a, a huge uh, Russell for Hall of Fame bandwagon out there, but I'm happy to be on it. And anyone that wants to join, there's plenty of room. And one thing, Adam, one reason I'm a big fan of yours is that that's one of Sports References sites is Football Reference. We've talked about soccer on this show several times. We're wondering if we could have you on my Weston McKinney fan podcast at some point. I have to say, when I first started listening to this podcast, it was those little bits of soccer that sneak in that I was like, all right, this is definitely made for me. Fantastic. But in the meantime, tell us about Rick Russell and how you ended up being the, the president of the Rick Russell fan club. All right. So you mentioned the Hall of Stats site earlier. So the, the Hall of Stats is a website that kicks everybody out of the Hall of Fame. 
and populates it again at the same size, but only based on a mathematical formula that is a combination of war and wins above average from baseball reference with a bunch of adjustments made to it for things like catching and relief pitching and stuff like that. So it's all one number for every player and just rank them, put them in. Not only is Rec Rushell in the Hall of Stats, he's he's way in. Like the, the borderline is a, a Hall rating of 100. Everything below it is out. Everything above it is in. And he's at 134, which is like way over the line. Like 120 is about an average Hall of Famer. So that's what got me interested about and, and Rick Russell because you didn't think of him this way, or at least I didn't. I mean, I only started following him towards the very end of his career. So when you think about the best pitchers outside the Hall of Fame, this is what I've been thinking about lately too. Like number one's Roger Clemens, obviously. A lot of people feel like Kurt Schilling is number two. But those two guys are out for non-baseball reasons. So who, who's the best pitcher besides them outside of the Hall of Fame? I've, I've been wondering if Rick Rushell does belong in that discussion, as strange as it seems. I mean, there's, there's Kevin Brown, who also has like the Mitchell report on his uh, resume. There's Louis Tiant. There's like 19th century pitchers like Jim McCormick. There's Jim Cott. There's Tommy John. But is Rick Rushell really behind any of those? It's, it's an interesting question. We got into this a little bit when we talked about Burt Blylevin, that both Matt and I became aware of Burt Blylevin probably late in his career and missed those peak years in the 1970s. And I think the same goes for Rick Russell. We'll get to it later on that I remember him as a 40-year-old pitching seemingly out of his mind statistically for the Giants in their World Series year in 1989, but just kind of look, would look at the back of the card and think the rest of that career is is not much but using some of these advanced stats, we're going to get into that hopefully later on, uh, why Rick is is worthy or hall-worthy or borderline hall-worthy. Before we look at any stats, we need to look at this card. So looking at the front of 660, and David, this is a, a noteworthy card for several reasons, but this is our first painted cap of the series. The reason why they had to do this paint job here is that Rick was traded mid-season in 1987 from the Pittsburgh Pirates to the San Francisco Giants. He was traded in August, and as we talked about before, they had these cards run in September. I guess they didn't have too much time, but they had some time to you know, get a graphic designer in there to paint this one up. We had the Dickie Knowles card that had that weird little Now with Tigers note. They decided that they didn't even have a picture to paint of Dickie Knowles, with Rick, they must have had him wearing a Pirates hat, and then they just painted over it with this San Francisco Giants hat. I reached out to Twitter user at Painted Cap, which is a great repository of the many years of Topps painted baseball cards. At Painted Cap does an analysis of different card caps, and I asked if, if he had analyzed this card. And he said that there were some of the techniques that were used were the logo size contraction the under-brim angle, the collar striping, and pastoral background. So thank you, Painted Cap, for that analysis. I'm wearing a baseball cap right now, and I don't know how I could move my head to get this angle of brim that Rick has here. There's a lot of brim showing on that. I wonder if Painted Cap collects stats about these caps in a way that, Adam, you could feed into your algorithm in any way. If the under-brim angle of the pitcher... <laughs> could be relevant at all in the hall of stats but i what i notice first is rick he's got a sheen on his skin he's very well lit his skin is just kind of 
is glistening, but he's obviously also not very young in this picture. So it's it's kind of disorienting. He kind of looks like a Romney, like maybe maybe a younger Mitt Romney, where you can't really tell how old he is. You're like you're you're not young, but you, but you look good. I think in this picture he would have been 38 or 39, and in some of his younger pictures and some of the contemporary pictures with this, he doesn't look great. <laughs> the camera did Rick no favors, <laughs> as we'll get to later on. And this one, this is a good-looking picture. It looks like maybe they stretched his neck out a little bit or just had him really, really stand up straight. But I think that Rick looks good in this picture. Yeah, this is a good angle. An interesting thing about this photo, too, is I feel like it might be the only photo that Topps had of him because I was looking at uh, comc.com, check out my cards, and this is the photo they used not only for his 88 Topps card but for the mini card. Uh, they used that for the Rite Aid card that they put out, the Revco card, so they just kept – they found this one they liked and they just ran with it. We've got a good headshot. It has no body in it. Let's go with it. So now going to the back of the card, we've got Rick Rushell is 6'3", 240. It's not a number we see too often on these cards. Right-handed thrower and batter. Drafted by the Cubs in 1970. And born May 16th, 1949. Quincy, Illinois. Home in Arlington Heights, Illinois. In the Chicago area. Quincy, Illinois, David. Yes, Ricky Eugene Russell was his given name at birth. I like that his name is Ricky. And on early cards, he was listed as Ricky Eugene Russell. And Quincy, Illinois is on the Illinois side of the Mississippi River from Hannibal, Missouri. Hannibal is Mark Twain's hometown and has a lot of sites dedicated to Mark Twain. Quincy's one of these old river towns that in the 1800s had a lot of German immigrants. So there's a lot of really neat architecture in Quincy. It's also the home of Queer Eyes, Jonathan Van Ness as well as John Henry, who is the owner of Liverpool Football Club, along with the Boston Red Sox. And I would like to see Jonathan Van Ness and the Queer Eye guys do a Rick Russell episode. Maybe glam (laughs) him up a little bit. I think that would be fantastic. I also have a family connection in Quincy. Melvin Whitler, one of those German immigrant families, he married my grandmother's sister, Ginny, and they lived in Quincy for quite a long time. I, Aunt Jenny passed away in 2011, and my Uncle Muggs just about a month ago. Quincy was home of an epic pool party family reunion that I recall in the early aughts. We had a really good time there. So I enjoyed Quincy, Illinois a lot. I've only been there to knock on doors for state senate candidates. <laughs> a lot less fun than a pool party, David. Much less fun. But it's a neat, it's a neat place. Uh, <laughs> so so Rick so Rick was born in Quincy, Illinois, but he went to high school in Camp Point. The Camp Point was a town that I had never heard of, but a town of a thousand people in western Illinois. And this area of western Illinois is known as Forgatonia. And Forgatonia is this area of western Illinois that's between highways and doesn't have a train route that runs through it. And at one point in the 1970s, they said, we may as well secede. And this guy declared himself the governor of Forgatonia. And the Macomb Visitors Bureau uses Visit Forgatonia as their as their theme. And there's a Forgatonia brewing company that we're going to have to visit at some point. But Rick Russell and his brother Paul both played baseball. Both went to Western Illinois University. Go Leathernecks. 
and both are in the Western Illinois University Hall of Fame. Paul was an All-American, still holds a Western Illinois baseball record for strikeouts, and was also drafted out of high school and out of Western. So maybe he was thought of as the, the better prospect. Rick also went to Western, went 10-0 and in 1969 with a 1.29 ERA, and was drafted by the Cubs in 1970. Both of these brothers played for Galesburg, Man, I'm just dropping all of the Western Illinois town names here (laughs) in the Central Illinois College League. And I found this local story from Galesburg.com. Rick and Paul were described as big farm boys from Camp Point who were instant favorites with the local fans and consumed more fried chicken at the Huddle Drive-In on North Henderson Street than probably anyone in history. Oh my gosh. Put it on my tombstone, David. That sounds like the best thing anyone could have could ever say about you. <laughs> yes, so big farm boys, Paul and Rick were both on the Cubs, and Steve Stone was quoted as saying that he never saw the clubhouse food table because there was always 500 pounds of rushels ahead of him. <laughs> <laughs> but we're going to be kind to Rick and Paul. <laughs> hey, farm boys, farm boys got to eat. It's fine. But, yeah, they were big and and not necessarily out of shape. They were just large men. So following Rick's junior year in at Western Illinois, he was drafted in the third round by the Cubs, made a few stops in the minors, moved up uh, and played with his brother at double A, and then passed him. He was pretty impressive at all levels of the minors. And as with some of these old guy pitcher cards, we don't get to see any of his minor league stats on this. We don't even get a fun fact on this card. He was a combined 26 and 8 in three seasons in the minors. In AAA, he was 9 and 2 with a 1.32 ERA, and that earned him a call up in 1972. Onto a Cubs team that had Ron Santo, Billy Williams, Glenn Beckert, who recently passed away, and Fergie Jenkins. This rookie season Cubs team was basically the only good Cubs team that he played on. They had 85 wins and that was the best team that he played on for 10 seasons with the Cubs. So he finishes that rookie season 10 and 8, 2.93 ERA and four shutouts for his rookie season. That's fantastic. And starts a streak where he won more than 10 games for 9 seasons in a row. And it's particularly impressive because these were all bad teams and by 1974 all those players that I referenced before were gone except Billy Williams, who was in his last season as a 36-year-old utility player. And so Rick was the best player on the Cubs in wins above replacement from 1973 to 1980 in every season but one. And in that one season, the only guy who surpassed him was Bill Madlock, and he led the league in batting. As a six foot three, 240-pound pitcher, he wasn't an overpowering guy. He just had very good control good strikeout-to-walk ratio, and as his later catcher, Terry Kennedy, would describe, he he would prey on hitters' greed. So if he got behind in the count, he could trick a batter with a sinker and was, was very good at control and fooling batters. Adam, in part of your analysis is talking about Rick as a good player on some bad teams. How bad were these Cubs teams? 
Oh boy. I mean, you mentioned they were, they were quite bad, particularly after that first season. So I ran a couple of stat head searches, which is our, our uh, premium search service uh, on Baseball Reference and uh, all of our other sites. But uh, yeah, so the 1981 season was Russell's fifth with an ERA plus above average. So he had an above average ERA, even when park adjusted but a losing record. So better than average ERA, but losing record. So that's five seasons. The all-time record is six. So he had those in his, his first decade with Chicago pretty much already. And he also lost 81 quality starts over the course of his career. So six plus innings, three or fewer earned runs, which is tied for 19th all-time with Jim Cott. 51 of those came with the Cubs. And that's just a, <laughs> losing that many good starts is really rough. What was so bad about these Cubs teams. The defense really is what is going to do in Russell. They were really, really bad defensive teams. And playing at Wrigley Field is always rough for pitchers, good hitters park. But still, it's, it is pretty impressive the numbers that he put up with the Cubs. Also of note in that time with, with the Cubs is that he was joined by his brother Paul in 1975. So Paul, while maybe the better prospect coming out of high school, spent a lot of time in the minors, seven years in the minors before making it to the pros. And this leads us to another great card from 1977, the Big League Brothers card. <laughs> this, is, this card, David, is, I feel like it, it could be an SCTV sketch or a Saturday Night Live sketch. Just these two big boys... Big League Brothers, and not only that, an uncorrected error. Right. <laughs> they got the wrong guys with the wrong names. So this this card has these two large farm boys in their Cubs uniforms, and it has Rick on the left-hand side and Paul on the right, but the names are flipped. Paul is wearing some very large glasses. He does have a Dan Aykroyd look about him early Dan Aykroyd, both of them with great mustaches. This picture does not do either of them any favors. Yeah, and flip into the back. So this is card 634 from the 1977 season. Paul and Rick both picked up baseballs as soon as they were old enough. They were teammates in Little League, Pony League, High School, and American Legion Ball. Paul was the pitcher on the Little League and Pony League teams, and since the clubs played only once a week and only one pitcher was needed, Rick was the catcher. In one Pony League game, Paul hit a homer to win it for himself. Paul and Rick come up through Cubs organization. And again, uh, Tops showing that they can't really pick the fun fact here. They missed college, that they played together <laughs> in college. They also missed that Paul and Rick had one of the best brother moments in baseball history. In a Bleacher Report list, was ranked ahead of Joe Necro hitting a home run off Phil Necro. And that was that in 1975, they combined to throw a shutout. The only time in baseball history that two brothers have combined for a shutout. Yeah, that would have been a great fun fact. <laughs> that would have been probably the best of the fun facts for them. Well, while Rick's career lasted 19 MLB seasons, Paul spent five years as a reliever with the Cubs and Cleveland. This card set in 1977 is right in the middle of one of the best runs that Rick has with the Cubs. 77 was probably the first time that the Cubs had a chance 
to win a pennant outside of that 72 season. They were 19 games over 500 midway through the season. And Rick was 15-3 and three with a 2.13 ERA at one point in the season, and they were eight and a half games up. But the Cubs fell off in the second half of the season. Rick fell off and went 5-7 and seven to close out the season. And the Cubs ended up finishing exactly 500. That said, Rick, by wins above replacement, was the best National League player, period, with 9.6 wins above replacement. 9.5 from pitching and 0.1 from hitting. He was actually a, a pretty good hitter for a pitcher. I think that season he hit over 200, had a, a home run and maybe a couple triples, which is pretty impressive. And sometimes he was even brought in to pinch run, which for a guy as big as Rick what? <laughs> to be used as a pinch runner, <laughs> yeah, it, it shows he, he was an athlete. That's the thing. He pinch ran 17 times in his career. He won a couple gold gloves, of course, later in his career. But yeah, the guy could move. And in that 1977 season, he was voted to his first All-Star game and finished third in Cy Young voting behind Steve Carlton and Tommy John. (laughs) To go back to Adam's point about disappointing Cubs teams, this is the only 20-win season for a Cubs pitcher between Fergie Jenkins in 1971 and Greg Maddox in 1992. 1977, a great year for Rick. Winding up his Cubs career, there were two more seasons in 78 and 79 that are around 500. But 1980, they lose almost 100 games. 1981, he begins the season with the Cubs. But the day that the strike starts, he is traded to the Yankees, which, when the season resumes, is actually a contender. And Rick had been okay for the Cubs. 4-7 4-7 and seven with a 3.45 ERA, and then was pretty good for the Yankees. 4-4 four and four with a 2.66 ERA in that second half of the season. The Yankees end up making the playoffs, and Rick gets his first shot at the postseason. In six innings, he gave up two runs against the Brewers, but the Yankees lost. And then he didn't pitch in the ALCS. He did pitch in two games in the 1981 World Series, but he only threw for three and two-thirds innings and the Yankees lost that World Series. So his first shot at playoff baseball. But then 1982, we we get to this weird line where it just says, on disabled list. This is like now with Tigers. This is the first time that we're seeing such a strange annotation. So what's going on here? A couple issues here. There was an injury and a weird contract dispute. The contract first, I guess. Rick signed a five-year deal with the Cubs in 1979 that included deferred payments until 2030. As we sit here in 2021, I think to myself, is is Rick still getting paychecks sent to him monthly from before I was born? But this dispute, because Rick was traded from the Cubs to the Yankees, the Yankees were supposed to pick up his contract. The Yankees' ownership agreement only went until 2002, so they argued that they couldn't agree to this 2030 timeline. So Rick stayed home in the beginning of the 82 season, and supposedly he finally agreed to an extension. But then that extension was never signed, and he filed a grievance. So he shows up in camp, and he got hurt, and he never ends up pitching again for the Yankees. They cut him. And they paid him the remaining amount off that last year of the five-year deal. So it's still unclear if that 2030 deferment is still in effect or if he 
ended up uh, agreeing to that other contract term. So he never ends up pitching again for the Yankees. He re-signs with the Cubs and has a couple kind of disappointing seasons. I have one interesting fact about that 1983 season. He threw just 20 innings, but it, it, it was an interesting season because it was the first time Russell ever played with a gold glove winner in Ryan Sandberg. So that was the first time through age 34 in his career. And I was looking up Jim Palmer just to compare, which is totally not fair to do. But Jim <laughs> Palmer had played with 34 gold glove winners at that point, not including the four he won himself. But yeah, it, it's just another way to, to describe the the defense that was behind Russell throughout the peak of his career. And while gold gloves, not always an indication of the actual value, you would think that even by accident, somebody right. on the Cubs would have won a gold glove in his 10 seasons there. Rick is left off the 1984 postseason roster and becomes a free agent again in 1984. So we have a 35-year-old Rick Russell. I guess what comes next for that guy? Does does he retire? He tries out the Pirates. He tries out in Pittsburgh. The Pirates gave him a shot at spring training. They gave him number 70 when when he joins the team. Yeah, they clearly were not thinking that Rick was going to make the team. I think he had had a triple-A contract, but they invited him to spring training to try out. The manager at the time said, we've made Rick no promises, but I would think that he could be a long relief man. And instead, Rick ends up becoming the best player on this Pirates team. Again, a very bad Pirates team. They only won 57 games, but Rick won 14 of those. And Adam, this might be a thing that I need to search better on on baseball reference. I I was trying to find the highest percentage of a team's game won by one player. It's probably Steve Carlton in that 27-win season, but I thought 14 out of 57 was a pretty good ratio. Yeah, that, that's a pretty good ratio. I think the, the record is Carlton. And another thing about the 1985 season, it was his career high ERA plus, like better than any of the seasons that he had in Chicago. By one point, he beat that 90, 1977 season. But uh, yeah, so ERA compared to, to league and park, and he, he had his all-time best coming back in this season. Yeah, 14 and 8, 2.27 ERA. He wins his first gold glove and won the 1985 Hutch Award for exemplifying the fighting spirit and competitive desire to win. So I found out the Hutch Award is named for Fred Hutchinson. It was created in 1965 in honor of the late Fred Hutchinson, the courageous and inspirational former Major League Baseball player and manager who died of cancer at the age of 45. It says that it's ranked as one of the top annual awards given to a Major League Baseball player. The Hutch Award has honored greats like Mickey Mantle and Sandy Koufax. Teams have the opportunity to nominate one player from their team that exemplifies the fighting spirit of the legendary leader, Fred Hutchinson. Rick Russell, both coming back from an injury, being 36 years old, and not just being the star of that 85 Pirates team, but as Adam said, like having a one of the best seasons of a very long career, pretty great. Going to 1986, uh, the Pirates are again you know, in the cellar. They're losing close to 100 games. And, you know, Rick doesn't have a great season in wins and losses. You know, it was a ERA around four. 1987, pretty good for the Pirates. Nine complete games, three shutouts, and an eight and six record. And then ends up traded to the Giants midseason. As we saw on the front of this card, Rick started the season with the Pirates and then was traded to the Giants. He ended up, for the season, leading the National League in both complete games and shutouts. And he, again is traded to a winning team. 
he gets to join the a contender, San Francisco Giants, who ended up going to the playoffs and playing against the St. Louis Cardinals. And Rick started game one of that series against the Cardinals, unfortunately took a loss, and the Giants lost in seven games, as we talked about in the Hackman episode. But those playoffs in 1987 earned Rick a spot in RBI baseball. You know what that means? It is time to go to the RBI corner with Brian. Welcome back to the RBI Baseball Corner. We're here with Brian. We're here to talk about the San Francisco Giants for the first time. So talk about the Giants. Are they any good? The Giants are actually pretty good. They're not great. They're probably not in that tier with Detroit and Boston and California. But the way that I think about the Giants is, you know, when you're playing against a friend and you don't want to be one of the absolute best teams because that just seems cheap, but you also don't want to be one of the absolute worst teams because at the end of the day, you'd like to beat your friend in RBI baseball, you choose San Francisco because they're pretty good, but they're not necessarily one of the best. So they're good, but fair, a fair team to pick. If they're, exactly. if they're pretty good, what style of team are they? Well, number one, I think they're aesthetically very beautiful. They have this wonderful orange and black feel. It just feels like 1980s baseball and candlestick park. So I think that's enjoyable right off the bat. They're solid all around. Their lineup is solid. It's above average. They don't have that Reggie Jackson type bat. Their best players are Will Clark and Chili Davis. So in some ways, they're the quintessential 80s team because those guys are batting fifth and seventh in the lineup. And unfortunately, in RBI baseball, you can't rearrange the lineup. But in the 1980s, if you go back and look at it through the lens of analytics, most managers didn't understand lineup construction too well. They tended to bat their better batters in the wrong spots anyway. So in many ways, the Giants are representative of the era. They don't have a whole lot of speed. They have power up and down the lineup, but they do have an RBI baseball cult hero in Harry Spillman, who's always good for a pinch hit home run or a home run if you just play him um, straight away and maybe even sub him in for the weed-off spot. Their pitching staff is actually pretty great. It's better than their lineup. It is all righties, but their two starters are Rick Russell and Mike Kruko, and they both have great curve in both directions. So you can really play them against both righties and lefties pretty, pretty, pretty effectively. Still, if you're playing against Detroit or the Mets, these lefty-heavy offenses, you'd probably rather have some left-handed pitchers. But what's fun about them is you go from having these high-curve starters to hard-throwing relievers, in this case, Scott Gerelts, and that contrast can be really helpful. So Rick Russell is our card today. How is he in RBI baseball? He's very good in RBI baseball. What's fun about him is they use his composite stats. They actually use his 1987 stats blended between his time with the Pirates and his time with the Giants, which is amazing precision given that the game in other contexts will just throw out random ERAs for players. So I think that's kind of a nice touch. Much like Juan Berenguer and Charlie Kerfeld, who we've covered, uh, we're once again featuring a player who has an RBI baseball quality build, <laughs> given his girth. Uh, so he's another rotund player. But girth aside, he's a very solid starting pitcher. He'd be the best starting pitcher on some teams. Uh, great curve in both directions, a very good drop ball. Standard endurance, but when you don't have to throw a lot of fastballs, sometimes you can actually go deeper into games. Great. So is he worth starting? He's absolutely worth starting. Having said that, both of their starters are worth starting. A lot of times I end up going with Kruko because he's listed first and because his full name is actually represented on there, so it feels more <laughs> authentic. Uh, it isn't some sort of shortened amalgamation. But he's a very effective starter. What's interesting is that both Russell and Kruko are very similar. They're both soft tossers with great curveballs. 
Russell's a, Russell's a bit more balanced and versatile, so you can kind of throw in and out to both lefties and righties. But you'd be very effective starting your, your game with, uh, with Rick Russell. Well, girth aside, thanks a lot for that, Brian. And we'll see you next time in the RBI Corner. Great. Thanks, guys. And we're back and going to 1988. Rick won 19 games for the Giants, 3.12 ERA as a 39-year-old. One of my favorite things about this podcast, David, is that we find all these old guys having amazing years. And this is just a fantastic one. You know, it makes you feel better about the inexorable march of time that, you know, maybe maybe next year is going to be my Rick Russell in 1989 season. <laughs> and this... This 88 season was, Rick was good for 3.6 wins above replacement that year. Uh, I thought this was interesting, and particularly because we have an expert on. In most of his seasons with the Cubs, Rick was good for five wins above replacement. In that 1977 season, he was good for nine. This season, he ends up having what looks like a pretty good season, 19 wins and 3.12 ERA. I know that wins are not necessarily the best metric for a pitcher, but what, what accounts for that difference? Yeah, the answer is really the the context in which he pitched. So we, we mentioned with the Cubs, Russell was playing in a hitter's park with terrible defenses behind him. And finally, with the Giants, he had a reverse of fortune in like every way. So he's on a winning team. It was a pitcher's park. He had some solid defenses behind him, and he really thrived. And another thing that changed right at that moment is the scoring environment. 1987, of course, like you've talked about on the, the show before, was the rabbit ball year. And the NL uh, was scoring 4.52 runs per game. That dropped in 88 to, to 3.88, which is a massive drop. And then it just went up slightly to 3.94 the next year. And those were Russell's two best seasons in San Francisco. After that, the, the runs scored per game gradually increased until we got to the height of the steroid era. The scoring environment changed, really took a chunk out of uh, Russell's war there, which, again, I mean, kind of makes his career total at the end just so much more impressive when you consider that as well. So 1989, he turns 40 years old and has another great year. He also got himself on the cover of Sports Illustrated magazine. And we've talked about Rick's size in this podcast. This Sports Illustrated cover even kind of makes fun of Rick. <laughs> I, I this it defies belief how this is happening. I just when I watch this picture, this this one. How, this, this, how do we describe it? How do you describe it? His butt is sticking out so far. I don't understand it, David. The, again, he's in mid windup. This is he also, right, he's in mid pitch. He, he had like I, a two thirds release as well, and maybe because of that almost sidearm motion. It adds at least two chins. Yeah, it's not it, a good look, and I'm. I'm I mean, sorry I don't know. I, do, I disagree. It's not. A, I don't think it's a bad look. I think it's just. It's so mystifying. The headline on the cover is a true giant. And the subhead: Rick Russell, all two hundred forty or more pounds of him, is twelve and three, and has San Francisco on top. And his face is so focused and so kind of squinting and scrunched up that yeah it does add a chin or two his jersey his jersey top is kind of enormous so you can't tell really what the top half of his body looks like but the bottom you can tell it's really it's a whole lot of shaking going on and 
imagine though that you finally get on the cover of Sports Illustrated and you hold it up and this is what it says. It's just me. Like they really like they are just dragging the guy on on the cover. As that cover says, he was twelve and three. This was a great Giants team that made it to the World Series. Rick ended up winning seventeen games and had a two point nine four ERA. He also at forty got the start in the All-Star game for the National League. In this first inning, he has a inning to forget with Tampico, Illinois' own President Ronald Reagan in the booth with <laughs> Vin Scully. You know, Reagan famously was a baseball announcer back in the day. He said that his home run call was, get that man a box of Wheaties. <laughs> he didn't <laughs> use that in this inning, but... Bo Jackson hits a leadoff home run very deep to center field off Rick Russell. And that's unfortunately one of the lasting images of Rick Russell is giving up back-to-back home runs to Bo Jackson and Wade Boggs. I imagine we're all probably of the age where this was one of the formative images of Rick Russell that we had. I mean, the All-Star game was everything at that point. And we were at the, the peak of Bo Jackson mania and just seeing, and like you said, you're forgetting the fact that this is a 40-year-old guy starting as the all-star game for the first time on the mound. It's just, it's still a, an amazing feat. Somebody in the crowd had a bow nose sign up. It is really a sign of the time to have recent ex-president Ronald Reagan talking about Bo Jackson's hobby of playing football in the off season. Yeah. I'm sure Rick Russell made Nike very happy. <laughs> so an iconic moment that Rick Russell gets to be a part of. He also gets more playoff baseball that year. He ended up getting a win in the playoffs, his first playoff win against the Cubs in the deciding Game 5 of the NLCS, taking the San Francisco Giants to the World Series. That World Series is probably best remembered for the the Bay Area earthquake before the start of Game 3. Russell had already lost Game 2, giving up five runs to the A's in four innings, and the Giants were swept. For his career, Rick was 1-4 with a 5.85 ERA in playoff games. So unfortunately, was not able to recreate his usual solid stuff in the playoffs. Wrapping up his time with the Giants in 1990 and 91, he's over age 40 at this point. Injuries start to creep up. He had knee surgery in 1990. In the end, in 1991, it was it's time for him to go. He's 42 years old. Big Daddy gets released in June, and that, that ends things, but... Where do we put him in, I guess, first of all, in Cubs history? It was really interesting to me to look at the list of Cubs players by wins above replacement and to see Rick Russell's picture on that list. He was ahead of Mark Grace, ahead of Mordecai Brown, ahead of all three Tinkers, Evers, and Chance. It was, you know, he's second in war for pitchers after only Ferguson Jenkins. Fifth in strikeouts, even though he wasn't really even a power pitcher. You know, as a Chicago baseball fan, had no idea of the, I guess, the the 1970s dominance of Cubs baseball that Rick Russell was. And, you know, overall, his career stats on a card would look a little bit pedestrian. 214 wins, 191 losses, 3.37 ERA is good over 19 seasons. I was I was really surprised when Adam said that he wanted to talk about Rick Russell as a potential Hall of Fame candidate. And so I guess that leads us to, you know, the the final question of where is Rick in the Hall of Fame conversation? 
I think he got what two votes in 1997 for the Hall of Fame. Yeah, it was it was not pretty. And like we said before, Russell pretty much had everything working against him in his peak. He was on a bad team. Actually, for his career, his teams only had a 473 winning percentage for his entire career. That's even including the the successful Giants teams. He played his peak in a hitter's park, although he did eventually pitch in, in candlestick. And he played for that dreadful defense that I mentioned. And according to War, over the course of his career, his defenses cost him 70 runs more than the average defense. So not just 70 runs, period, but more than an average defense would surrender. So that's that's a lot of runs just coming from your, your leaky defense. And despite all of this, his raw numbers, they really are better than you think. I mean, you mentioned his, his win total, 214, 337 ERA. That's pretty good. Uh, he's He's got a better winning percentage and ERA plus than Nolan Ryan. I know that Nolan Ryan, some believe that maybe he was a, a glorified 500 pitcher, but no, he's, he's, a, he's a Hall of Famer and very famous. And Russell didn't pitch as long as Nolan Ryan, but he pitched a very long time. So the ERA plus of 114, that does factor in the park that he pitched in, but not that defense. So ERA plus is really doing Rick Russell a disservice. In fact, only 35 pitchers in history have a better ERA in more innings, and 30 of those are in the hall. One's Roger Clemens. Three of them played in the 19th century. One of them is is Jack Quinn, who pitched literally until he was 50 years old, and I think his (laughs) best season was in the Federal League. So he's kind of an anomaly, too. So where, where Russell really stands out is war, and war reassigns the credit for those bad defensive performances. It takes runs away from the fielders and gives it to the pitcher. So Russell's kind of collecting all of those runs in that exchange. It also adjusts for the park factors, like ERA Plus does, and there's a whole bunch of other adjustments I won't get into, but what... War starts with runs allowed per nine innings. It doesn't deal with earned runs because it's factoring in defense and stuff like that. So Russell allowed 3.79 runs per nine innings in his, in his entire career. And what War does is it uses all of these, these uh, modifications and conversions to figure out how many runs an average pitcher in Russell's context would give up. So the average pitcher facing the same opponents in the same park in the same era with the same defense behind him. And that fictional pitcher uh, would allow 4.6 runs per nine innings. So that's a huge difference. And when you tabulate that over a 19-year career, suddenly you're arriving at nearly 70 wins above replacement. So I think that uh, I feel very comfortable saying that according to war, which I, I do trust the war components, I, I feel they're very they're grounded in, in science and very methodical. So According to War, yes, he provided Hall of Fame value, for sure. But the real question, maybe I'll turn back at you guys, is does providing Hall of Fame value automatically make you a Hall of Famer? Or is there something else that needs to be included? I would go ahead and say yes. Hall of Fame value would be a great reason and should be enough to make a person a Hall of Famer. I would be okay with someone with not as good stats and maybe not as many years of service, but other qualities being included as well. I like Hall of Fame that's more inclusive just in general. But yeah, this is a very compelling case to me. I had some unfortunate thoughts about this because at first I was really getting on your side with Rick Russell. And then I kind of fell down into this. Well, maybe he just ends up as that guy who's right on the cusp and he is the line. And I think I would be okay either way if he was in the hall and there's an explanation of what that means and what and 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 maybe it could get into a bigger conversation of 
what is value in, in baseball and adding some of that statistical element because I, I think that there are guys in there that we forget. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm also a big Hall person. When Ron Santo got in, it was like, yeah, he was the best third baseman in his league for a decade. For Rick Russell, it's more like he was the best player on his team for a decade. Maybe not necessarily the best pitcher, but one of the best. And it gets into a little bit more of a it's it's a little bit more of a gray area. And so I I was I wanted to be on your side, and I think I am, but I think that it's 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 difficult because there's always gonna be one a guy who's right on that line. And for a long time it was Burt Blylevin. Blylevin is probably one of the dozen or so best pitchers of all time, according yeah. to the, the war stats. So the fact that he was outside of the Hall of Fame was completely ludicrous. <laughs> we, I think, took a, a bit deeper of a dive into Bly Levin when we talked about his card. And Russell gets, he's, he's right on that line. And I, I do think that there is a place for him and for a guy like Louis Tiant. I guess so. I, I don't know if I'm comfortable with a Russell line of demarcation. I, I don't know how I feel about that. But I think you make a good case, Adam, and I think this is a and at least a, a more fair one because it does seem like there are players that get overlooked. And if you want to have a have criteria for excellence, let's just go ahead and say what the criteria are right. and and put it out there. If nothing else, I think when other pitchers come up, uh, I would like to have people think about well, if Rick Russell is not a Hall of Famer, considering what he did. How can we make the case for these other pitchers who probably didn't do as much? So just having him on the mind as people are assessing Hall of Fame pitchers, I, I think that would be a win for me. So we know that Rick Russell is not in the Hall of Fame, but but David, where is he now? I have not found many interviews with him recently. I've heard that sometimes he shows up at some like old-timers events I did find an interview with his brother, Paul, who still lives in Western Illinois. He still lives in Macomb. And there was an interview with him in 2016 because Paul played for both Cleveland and the Cubs. And when the World Series was coming around, they asked him how he felt about that. But Paul was always a Cubs fan. Rick grew up a Cardinals fan. Central Illinois split between Cubs and Cardinals. Apparently the Russell household was split as well. As of 2016, Paul said that he called Rick right after the World Series win. Rick was living in Pittsburgh at the time. At one point, they were running a small family farm in western Illinois, but now it seems like Rick is in Pittsburgh. But not really sure what he's doing. Adam, any idea? Have you heard anything lately? You know, I, I, I actually tried to get an interview with Rick many years ago. I wrote an article about him at High He Stats, and his daughter happened to like it on Twitter. So I tried to use that as my, oh, can, can you show this to dad? Can I get an interview? She showed it to dad, didn't get the interview, but that was the closest I got to Rick Russell. So listeners out there, if you, if you have any updates, any Rick Russell updates, you know, please let us know. Adam, where can people find you in the Hall of Stats? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter at BaseballTwit and uh, HallOfStats.com and Hall of Stats on Twitter, too. And uh, yeah, if you want to talk about anything related to baseball reference or stat head, I'm always listening, always happy to talk to users. That's kind of my my role there as uh, the, the UX person. Just want to hear how everybody's using baseball reference and what we can do for you. Very exciting. And thanks again for joining us. It's been great having you on the show. And thank you all to all the listeners out there. If you have players to request, or especially if you've been at the buffet table with your brother, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us on Twitter at Tops1988. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.